I hope you all having a good new year so far. Been going better than 2018. Hopeful. Hope, hope so. Uh, I'm Greg Boyd. I'm a teaching pastor here. And if you're visiting for the first time, really glad that you're here. Uh, so this is, we're in between series here. And so this is a one knockoff uh, message here. So I get to preach on anything I want. Yay! But actually, we do everything as a team around here because we think that's God's way of doing things. Everything's done through relationships. So uh, the sermon team was thinking, like, what do we need to hear um, that would just be a one-time sermon, not part of a series? And we came to the conclusion, I think uh, the right one, that we we need this every once in a while, uh, a, a reminder about how important prayer is to our lives, to our families, to the work of the kingdom. It's absolutely foundational. And we need reminding of this on a regular basis, so we come back to this at least once or twice a year. Because in our secular environment, it's just so easy to forget that. Prayer doesn't often feel like it's doing much. Uh, and yet, according to Scripture, it, uh, it, it, it runs the world. And so this is going to be on the importance of prayer. Now, to set up why prayer is so important, because until you can really understand why, it's hard to do something just on the basis of an ought or a should or you're supposed to. Uh, but if, if you can see why it's so important, uh, it helps motivate us and stay in the game on this. And so uh, the first half of this message, or maybe even a little bit more, I'm going to be setting up a framework to help us understand why prayer is so important. And I'm going to do it by talking about what it means to be made in the image of God. The Bible says that we are all made in the image of God. And um, people have had a lot of different theories about what that means. A lot of discussions, a lot of debates, a lot of things like that. But now that we, we have access, we have available uh, a number of, of, in fact, a wealth of writings of the ancient Near East, we can look at what that term meant in its original cultural context. And, and whatever else that, that word may, might mean to you, that phrase, image of God, might mean, it's, its anchoring meaning has to be what it had in its original context. Now, in the ancient Near East... Uh, they, they use this concept of the image of God for, for two different ways. Um, the first has to do with this. When uh, the culture would make a, a statue, an idol, to a god, they would call that statue the image of God. And what would happen is um, an artesian uh, would pray for inspiration from this god to create a statue that resembled the god in certain important respects. So if, if the god was a warrior deity, uh, the, the, the statue would be a warrior statue. Or if it was a nurturing deity, if, if that's what the god was known for, then it, it'd be a statue that somehow conveyed nurturing. So you want the, the statue has to resemble the god in certain ways. And then uh, when the statue was created, there was a week-long ceremony that they had, really elaborate, uh, to prepare this statue to become the, the habitation for this deity. They believed that the deity would take up residence in the statue. And that's when the statue would become in the image of God. So it wasn't in and of itself. It was only after, at the end of the ceremony. It lasted seven days, very elaborate. They took it down to the river. They washed it. They had all these kind of things just to get it ready to be the habitation for this God. And then on the last day, they would bring the statue into the temple. And in all these temples, they had like a garden, a really plush garden where that would be the, the home for, for this deity. Uh, they wanted it to resemble their idea of heaven, uh, what life would be like if everything was perfect. Uh, it would be a lush garden, and there'd always be streams that would uh, surround this deity, because uh, in the ancient Near East, uh, water is just uh, a symbol of life. 
And um, actually, the way it's, it's, it's described in this other literature, it sounds very much like the Garden of Eden in the Bible. When you read the Garden of Eden in its cultural context, uh, it, it, it has all the trappings of this garden that the, that, that the statue would be put into. Uh, the interesting thing is that whereas in all these other cultures, people create the garden for the God to dwell in, in Genesis, God creates the garden for people to dwell in. And there we, we dwell together. But it's very much like these, these, these gardens of the, of, of the God. And then the ceremony would culminate when um, the high priest would breathe into the nostrils of the statue. And he, he would just breathe this in, and, and, and it was at that moment they believed that the statue actually becomes the habitation for this deity and actually becomes alive. Uh, they would talk to this, they, they treated the statue as, uh, as though it was a living thing. And that's what they really believed because their deity lives there. And so they would talk to the statue and give it food and all sorts of other strange things. Okay, so image refers to whatever uh, on earth resembles the deity in a certain way, a statue that resembles this deity in a certain way. Um, Everything about Genesis 2, as it describes the Garden of Eden, is, is, is tapping into this, uh, this common cultural phenomenon that's going on all around the Israelites, including the culminating act. We read this in, in Genesis 2. It says that the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Breathing into his nostrils. Now, you might wonder, like, why would he breathe into the nostrils instead of the mouth? That's, you don't do nose-to-nose resuscitation. You do mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. What's up with that? But see, that, that, that specific phrase has a, has a particular meaning in the ancient Near East because it's tapping into this ritual that everyone does. And so the Lord here is communicating in a way that ancient Near Eastern people can understand that um, we are the statues of God. We are the living statues of God. Uh, and this is why, in the Bible, we're not allowed to have any graven images. Uh, you, you can't represent the living God, the true God, the creator of heaven and earth. You can't represent that God uh, with a, a stone, lifeless statue. Because it's not resembling God in the most important respect, which is that God is alive. God is life itself. And so a lifeless statue could never uh, reflect the nature of this, this, this deity. To, to reflect the nature of the living God. You need a being who's alive. You need a being who, who can move, a being who can think, a being who can love, a being who can get passionate about things, a being who can laugh and who can cry, uh, who's, who's willing to take risks, is curious. Is, you can't resemble God by being a lifeless statue. You've got to be a person who's fully alive. Amen? I love it. Uh, one of my favorite quotes in the early church is from Irenaeus, second century theologian. This is, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. Let's all read that. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. Hallelujah. See, God didn't breathe his breath of life into you so that you could be just surviving. Uh, God breathed his breath of life in you because he wants you thriving. Uh, God didn't breathe his breath of life into you so that you could just play it safe and just be average and be middle of the road, mediocre, just getting by. No, that that doesn't reflect what God's like. You may have noticed that the God of the Bible is an edgy God. He's an extreme God. He goes all the way. Whenever God does anything, he goes all the way with it. What kind of God becomes a human being and dies a God-forsaken death on a cross for a race of people who could deserve it less? This is a God who's, who, who, who goes to the extreme. This isn't your average God here. 
And, 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 and so when God breathes his breath of life into us, it's not so that we can just get by. Uh, it, it just survived. No, no. God breathes his breath of life in us so that we manifest something of his fullness of life. That's why Jesus says in John 10, I've come that you might have life, but not just biological life, not just giving by life, not just surviving life, but rather life to the full, life abundantly, life overflowing. God created us for abundant life. God created us to not just be spectators watching life go by. God created us to be participants, to be in the game, to be engaged, to be invested, to be awake, to be alive, fully alive, manifesting God's life. God created us to, 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 to live on the edge um, and to be pushing the envelope. And uh, there there's, needs to be a, a sense of adventure in things. This isn't supposed to be just a monotonous day after day, same kind of thing. Rather, it, it's, 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 it's about living in the now, living, living awake, living with passion, living in love, living invested in others, willing to take risks, willing to be vulnerable, willing to laugh but also cry. So the question, the first question I want to ask this morning is, is what does your life more resemble? A lifeless statue or a fully alive living being, living to the glory of God? Um, and and just, just chew on that. If your life, now, and I'm not insulting us for sometimes feeling like lifeless statues. We all feel like lifeless statues now and then. I guess it be 10 o'clock at night and I'm, I'm a lifeless statue. Very <laughs> little time. So, not, yeah, yeah, but your whole life shouldn't look like that. Are, are, are you a lifeless statue watching life go by, or are you, are you in the game? Are you a fully alive human being? And, and if the answer is more along the lines of a lifeless statue, um, you, well, you, you, might, you might just be stuck. Maybe you want to mix it up, do something different. You know, if you keep on doing the same input, you're going to have the same output. Maybe you need to take a radically different break. Do something, you know, shake it up a little bit. Go someplace, do something. You know, just shock yourself into a different mode of being. But it could also be the case that if you're feeling like you're a lifeless statue, like I can almost assure you this, that there's some kind of wound there. Wounds freeze us. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, when there's wounds there, they, they, they tend to like freeze tag. You get frozen and, and, and you can't move on. And the good news is that there's healing for that wound. Um, I encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you, if you're feeling like you're just kind of living, you're not really thriving, you're not really dancing, you're not fully alive, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you, what is that wound? And then invite Jesus in on that wound. Um, and it will always take the form of a memory, because wounds are, are encoded in memories. Invite Jesus into that memory, and God specializes at healing those old wounds. Amen? God specializes. Uh, God's a great therapist. Really. He's cheap, too. Uh, it just, it's, invite Jesus in there, and, and it's amazing if, if you'll just let the Holy Spirit let it go and surrender your imagination to the Spirit. God can do amazing, amazing, amazing things. He specializes in setting the captives free. He delights in, 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 in just melting chains off of people. Uh, he, he, he loves. He doesn't, he doesn't change the past, but he changes the meaning of the past. And that's what sets us free. So folks, God wants us to be fully alive. You're in the image of God. Manifest God's life to your last dying breath. Don't settle. Don't coast. Uh, be fully alive, fully awake, invested in the game. So that's the first meaning that image of God had in the ancient world. Refer to the statues. We are God's living statues. Hallelujah. Representing God's character to the world. The second thing is, I think, even more interesting and that is that there's one person in any kingdom in the ancient Near East that was allowed to be called the image of God, the image of a God. And that was the king. And he was called the image of God because he ruled everything. And so it was believed that this image of God, uh, king, 
was closer to God than anybody else, in some ways mediated the presence of the national deity to everybody else. Uh, the fate of the nation uh, hung in the balance on, on uh, the degree to which this king uh, obeyed or disobeyed uh, the, the, the God. Uh, the job of the king was to reflect the character and the will of the deity by how he ruled the kingdom. And this is what you find in the Old Testament. Uh, God initially didn't want them to have a king, but uh, when the Israel, Israelites whined and cried and felt insecure, God said, okay, fine, I'll give you a king. And then the Old Testament takes on, it looks the same as it does with all the other nations that have a king, where the king is, is, is like uh, uh, the fate of the nation hangs on, 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 on the king. And you see this happening quite a bit uh, throughout the Old Testament. So the image of God referred to this as king. One person, one person alone is allowed to be called king. Now, in that light, remembering that, this is what everybody, is, this is what's obvious to everybody. The king is in the image of God and nobody else. In that light, let's read the, the Genesis 1, where it says this. So God created humankind in his image, and the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. In a cultural context where everybody knows Commonsensical. It's as obvious as the nose on your face, where everybody knows that the king alone is in the image of God. This author has the audacity to say that God created humankind in God's image. Male and female, he created them in his image. What the author is saying, understood in its ancient Near Eastern context, what the author is saying is human beings, just by virtue of being human beings, are kings and our queens. Uh, what everyone else is saying is true about the king is true about every human being that's born in this world. Hallelujah. And, 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 and what, what it means is that we are created to rule. We are created to rule. Image of God in ancient Near East meant rule. That's why the Lord says, you're in my image, therefore have dominion over the earth and the animal kingdom. Reflect my character and the way that you rule the earth and the animal kingdom. You're made to be rulers. So you this morning, if you're a human being, and I presume you are, otherwise you probably wouldn't be listening to this message, it means that you are royalty. You are a king. You are a queen. You're, 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 born, you're born from greatness. You're, you're the status of where the king was in the ancient Near Eastern world. Now, you maybe don't feel like that. Maybe it doesn't look like that. Maybe the world doesn't acknowledge that. I'm quite sure the world doesn't acknowledge that. But what does that matter if God acknowledges that? Because God's your creator, and God's the only one who knows you perfectly. And if he says you're a king, and if he says you're a queen, then you are a king, and you are a queen. Praise God. Maybe you don't live in a palace like kings usually do. Maybe you're in a homeless shelter, but that, that doesn't make a bit of a difference. God says that you are king. God says that you are a queen. Maybe you don't, you don't have a lot of riches, a lot of wealth. Maybe you don't have two dimes to roll together. It doesn't roll together. It doesn't matter. If God says you're a king and you're a queen, then you are a king and you are a queen. Hallelujah. Uh, you, you don't drive in a big presidential caravan like they do, you know, whenever a president goes someplace, there's got to be a long line of cars and blah, 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 blah. No, you don't get that. You, you, you have to ride the city bus. But it doesn't make any difference, does it? Because God says you are king. God says you are a queen. You got, you know, you've got royalty. You don't wear nice robes like the kings of this world do. You don't have fine clothing. Maybe you've got one shirt and you've got one pair of pants and you got it from Goodwill three years ago. Where you can find really good deals, by the way. Shelly, my wife, she shops there all the time. It's just, uh, but who cares? 
you're defined by what your creator says about you, not by your circumstances, unless you let your circumstances define you. Your circumstances don't make any difference. You are born a king and queen. You've, you've got unsurpassable worth. That's why Jesus was willing to pay an unsurpassable price for you, praise God. It means we need to view ourselves this way, and we need to view everyone else this way. Every human being out there, treat them as a king and a queen because that's who they really are. That's what they really are. doesn't matter what their social status is. doesn't matter what their wealth is. doesn't matter anything about them. What matters is that, is that they were created to reign. They were created to rule, praise God. And now the way we rule is going to look very different from the way the world rules. The king and kings and queens of the kingdom don't look at all like the kings and the queens of the world. Because we're to reflect the character of our God, and his character is most perfectly revealed on the cross when Jesus gives his life for us. And so to rule in this kingdom is to take on the image of the God who created us, the crucified Christ. It's to take on the attitude of a humble servant. We rule by self-sacrificial love. We rule by service to others. We rule by humility. We rule by partnering with the one who thought every human being was a king and queen worth dying for. And, and we reflect his character by being willing to do the same thing. This is why Jesus said, a passage I like to quote a lot, Matthew 5, uh, Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. It's when we love our enemies. The kings and queens of this world, they don't love their enemies. They don't turn the other cheek. They, they don't pray for people who oppose them. They squash them. They crush them. They imprison them. They murder them. But our job is to do the opposite of that. Put on display the character of our Father by loving our enemies, by serving people. Uh, whether they're friends or foes, it doesn't matter. Uh, we're to always remember that our battle is never against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers and, and, and authorities that are always trying to get us to play off against other human beings. We, we, we fight those powers by refusing not to love somebody. This is our rule. This is, this is how we reign with Christ. The thing I'll say about that is that the, the other, last thing I'll say about that, it's not the last thing. It's, it's probably the third of the last thing. Somewhere in there. But here's the thing. Get used to that rule and exercising that rule, that reign, because you're going to be doing it for a long time, like forever. So look at a couple passages here. Dude says, if we have died with him, died to our old self, we will also live with him. And if we endure, we will also reign with him. We're going to be reigning with Christ. And then it says in Revelation 5, you are worthy to take the scroll and open the seals. For you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God's saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. Talking about Christ here. You have made them, referring to his people, to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on the earth. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth, and the ones who will be ruling here are going to be God's people. This is just the, the, the culmination of Genesis 1. This is what we were created for, to be partnering with God as we rule and have dominion over the earth and the animal kingdom. And they will be priests of our God and of Christ and will reign with him. And finally, Revelation 22, and they will reign forever and ever. So, folks, this is our, 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 our stance. From the very start, God's goal was to have a people uh, who would be partnering with him to extend his loving lordship over the earth and the animal kingdom. And out of the joy and the bliss of the union between God and humanity, to bring about God's will on earth as it is in heaven. This has been God's plan from the beginning. And it will only be perfectly manifested when the kingdom comes in fullness. But the truth is that we're to be extending this rule now. We're to be practicing this reign now. And, and, and uh, we're to be co-workers with God now. We're not supposed to wait for this to happen. 
No, this is something that we're to be engaging in right now. That's why Paul, even in the present, calls Christians God's co-workers. So he says this in 1 Corinthians 3. We are God's co-workers, synergos. And as, God co- as God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. This is this, this phrase uh, for co-workers, synergos. It comes from the prefix sin, which means alongside of or with. And then ergos is the word uh, we get for energy. It literally means energy. So co- uh, it means, uh, co-worker means you bring your energy alongside of another. And this is what, what, what we're to be doing. Um, we take our energy, our gifts, our talent, our time, and we bring it alongside of God, and we partner with God to bring about God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Now notice here, you really do bring something to the table here. You, you've got your own energy, your own work, your own calling. Um, you bring something to the table. A lot of folks have this idea that God you know, maybe appears to use us, but really God's pulling all the strings. And they think that they're complimenting God in doing that. Like, oh, we do nothing. God does everything. Which means God would be, would be doing the evil in the world as well, which I would totally reject. But the scripture says, no, we really do matter. You really are significant. You bring something important to the table. Uh, you add something here. Because, see, God isn't a, doesn't monopolize power. Everything God does, God does out of relationship. God could rule the world all on his own. He doesn't need us if, if, if it's just taking care of the earth and the animal kingdom. But, see, everything about God is relational. Lock this in. God is Father, Son, Spirit. God's very essence is relationality, perfect love. And everything God does, he does out of relationship. You find this pattern throughout the whole the, the Bible. Rarely does God just unilaterally do something. He, he likes partners involved in this. He's a God who's secure enough to give away power. He gives away say-so to others. He doesn't want to monopolize. He wants genuine relationships, which means there has to be a genuine person that he's relating to, a person who, who contributes to the conversation, a, a person who, who's got their own thing to bring, who adds, who, who makes a difference. You're important to the kingdom. You're important to the kingdom. And, and, and this brings us to, to why prayer is so important. Um, throughout the Bible, there are more if-then statements applied to prayer than any other human activity. This, this, the, the, if, the impression you get from Scripture is that this is the most important thing we do. Because look, if we're, if, if we're to be sitting on the throne, co-ruling with Christ, we better be talking to each other. <laughs> you can't rule together very well if you're not talking to each other. And, and, and see, it just makes sense that God would do this. A relationship is communication. To the, to the degree that you and I are genuinely related to each other, who I am is being communicated to you, and who you are is being communicated to me. Communication is the essence of relationship. And since relationship is what everything God's about, it's at the center of everything, it makes sense that God would hardwire it into the nature of creation that talking to him is very, very important. Communicating with God regularly is extremely important. Everything revolves around this. Um, when we talk to God, it changes things. It's just wired into the nature of creation. That talking to God changes things, heals things, fixes things, moves things forward. It brings about his will on earth as it is in heaven. And this is part of our royal calling. This is, everything we do is to be advancing the kingdom, it's to be reflecting the character of Christ. But in prayer, we've got this unique kind of say-so. We've got say-so on all these different levels, but in prayer, we've got a unique royal say-so. This is part of you being made in the image of God. This is, this is how you reign with God to bring about his will on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, Paul Bilheimer, in his great book, Destined for the Throne, um, he, he uses this analogy that I think is just perfect. He likens the power of prayer to like a trust fund. But it's a trust fund that can only be accessed 
uh, with, with two signatures, or the funds can only be released with two signatures. In this case, we need God to sign on to it. This is my will. And then God needs the bride to sign on to it, um, that we agree. And now, now God's will can be done on earth as it is in heaven. So God signs it in heaven, and then we sign it on earth, and now his will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. It's this reservoir of power. But God's serious about this because communication is the essence of relationship and relationship is about everything. That means this power will not be released unless God's people co-sign. Unless we in prayer agree with God on this. Things genuinely hang in the balance. This isn't a pro forma thing we're going through. God doesn't want a puppet bride, doesn't want, doesn't want puppet kings and puppet queens. No, God from the start, wanted a bride. It's an analogy you find throughout the whole Bible. A bride that would sit on the throne with him, that's really got authority, that's really got say-so, that really is significant, that really does make a difference. Doesn't want a puppet bride, a milquetoast bride, a doormat bride. No, he wants a bride that's got authority, a bride with personality, a bride that, 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 know, that knows who she is and knows who she, who's she is. A bride that's got some class and maybe a little pinch of sass and, and, and who knows where she stands and, and, and is willing to take that authority. A bride who really makes a difference. And this is what God calls us to be. There's people who really do contribute to things. Things hang in the balance on whether or not we pray. So when, I, when I'm praying for a friend, I know that I am releasing power from heaven. James says this, that the fervent prayer of a righteous person accomplishes much. And he uses this, this, that word again, energeo. He's almost using a play on words here. He's like saying, the, the energized prayer of the righteous person, the rightly related person, energizes things to accomplish much. Hallelujah. Your energized prayer, when you're passionate, when you're believing this, that energy accomplishes much. And so when I'm praying for a friend or whoever, uh, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm, I'm on the throne with Christ. I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places. And now I am co-signing on this, believing it's God's will for this person to be healed. I'm agreeing with that, and I'm pushing in that direction. And that is releasing kingdom power into that person's life. Now, you don't know whether it's going to accomplish what you're praying for it to accomplish. But it, even if it doesn't come to pass, it doesn't mean that yeah, that wasn't God's will. And it doesn't mean that you didn't have enough faith or they didn't have enough faith. Um, I can't get into it now, but there's, there's a ton of variables that affect what comes to pass what's possible in, every given, in any given situation. And if you want to find out more about that, i got a book out there called Is God to Blame? And you might want to check up on that. Why, why some prayers aren't answered. But you can know this. Whether you, whether you saw the outcome that you were praying for or not, you can know, just on the authority of, of Scripture, that you, you brought more of the kingdom into the world. That prayer makes a difference. It wasn't wasted. The situation... Even if the person isn't healed or the marriage isn't fixed or whatever, you left the situation more kingdomized than it was before. You're partnering with God to bring about that kingdom power, that unique kingdom power, that unique authority that we have as God's kings and queens. We're reigning with Christ. We're claiming this situation for the kingdom. We're taking back land for God. And our, our goal is to be doing this uh, throughout every day and gradually be taking the world back for God. But it happens in this humble, loving, cross-like way through the power of prayer. Things really hang in the balance. And see, here's the thing. This is our royal opportunity. We get, we get to have say-so in, 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 in bringing about God's will in this world. But it's also then our responsibility. Because you can't say that prayer makes a difference without saying that the lack of prayer makes that same difference, but in the opposite direction. See what I'm saying? 
on just a human level, we know this. We, we, we know that uh, we've got to say so. We've got a domain of authority. Um, and, and we're responsible for things. Uh, and and if, you are, if you don't take responsibility for that, you can hurt people. We all have the power to bless and to kill. Uh, things hang in the balance with our decisions. The same thing is true in prayer. Uh, in, in prayer, we've we got to say so. If the prayer of faith can sometimes save the sick, maybe the lack of prayer would sometimes kill the sick. Things really hang in the balance. So this is both our opportunity and our responsibility. We get to partner with God and bring about his will on earth as it is in heaven because you are an image of God bearer. You are a king. You are a queen. And your authority lies in this reservoir of power that God set aside, this trust fund for the people of God to tap into to bring about his will on earth as it is in heaven. Things really do hang in the balance. You see that throughout all of Scripture. Okay, I'm going to wrap this up by just giving five quick tips here. They're quick but very important. So if you've got a pen, you might want to write these down. I would if I were you. Okay. Uh, uh, five quick tips. Number one, when you're praying, it really is helpful to use your imagination. Uh, you find people who really get into prayer. You, you know, there's some people who just really get into prayer. It, 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 they love doing it. Others find it to be just a labor thing. And what I found is that the difference between these two groups is not necessarily that one's more spiritual than the other, but the one group, the people who get into it, something's going on between their ears that's not going on in the group that's just bored with prayer. They're, they're, they're seeing stuff. They're imagining stuff. And ask the Holy Spirit to help you represent what you're doing in prayer. Um, St. Francis de Sales, a 16th century monk, he said this. He said that the mind is like a wild bird flying around in a room, and, and it will keep on flying around until you put it in the cage of the imagination. And what he didn't know in the 16th century, but what we know now is that our brains think in images. We, 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 that's how we represent things. And the more, the more concrete we represent them in our mind, the more real it feels to us. And so folks that are representing things in their head as they're praying, and they, they, they see who they're talking to, and they, they somehow represent what, what's going on, they, it feels real to them. Like, this is important. And if you're not doing any of that, you see, your brain is it's wired to think about what is significant, and what is significant is what is real, and what's not significant is what's not real. And so if, if, there's, if there's nothing real like going on in your mind, uh, well... <laughs> You may not mind, but we'll think that the grocery list, that's real. I got I to gotta do groceries this afternoon, and I wonder what that person meant when they said that my hair looked funny. And uh, You might gravitate to other things. You probably have found this sometimes. You're praying, and all of a sudden, you're thinking about something totally different. Lock that mind in the cage of the imagination. Uh, represent what's going on. So, like, when I pray, I, I often see, like, this, 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 and, and when you get inside of, all, we're all very, very weird when you get in there deep enough. So the way you represent it's going to be, you know, a little different. But, but I, I see like this, this search spotlight from a helicopter coming down on a person that I'm praying for. And it's just a way of representing that. I know that I'm releasing kingdom power in that person's life. So there's a spotlight. Or sometimes it's like a waterfall flowing on them. And, and, uh, and see, in thinking that way, I'm just being accurate. Because as a matter of fact, kingdom power is flowing into their life. James 5.16, right? And so by getting my mind to line up with that, I'm just seeing the situation more accurately. Uh, and that helps you stay invested in the game. Or if I'm praying for someone uh, to be healed, I'll sometimes imagine them being healed. That, that's what faith is all about, having a vision of, of what you believe, what you expect, what you anticipate to come to pass, and then it creates a conviction that it is so. And so you keep pushing in that direction because you believe this is God's will and you're co-signing on this loan to release this power from heaven. Use your imagination. Ask the Spirit to help you with that. Second thing, try this. Um, try, try talking out loud when you pray if at all possible. Now, if you're shopping, 
Uh, you might want to whisper that. People will think you're a little bit strange. But it's okay to be strange. Strange is good. We're creating the image of a very strange God. Um, try saying it out loud. And the thing is this, that there, there is thoughts and speech are different things. There's a process that you go through in, in translating thoughts to speech. And I think that is an important step. Uh, when you speak things, it becomes more real to you. Whenever you communicate in the, the normal world, you communicate by talking. You use your lips and other expressions as well. And so if you're only thinking, that gets registered as less real. Speaking it, it helps articulate what's on your mind, but it also gives it a sense of reality. So just try talking, talking through things out loud. Third, agreement with others matters. That's not terribly eloquently stated, but here's what I'm getting at. In the Bible, you, you, you have times where people pray by themselves, and that's good, and that's important, and that's necessary. But there's also times where people come together and pray. And there is a unique power to that. Um, Things in the spiritual realm operate according to the same principles as things here in the natural realm. And so there are some rocks I could maybe push up a hill by myself, but other rocks maybe are too big and I need the help of others. It's the same thing in the spiritual realm. Yeah, there's a lot of things you can accomplish just by praying on your own. You're a king, you're a queen, you've got that authority, you've got to say so, use it. But when the people of God come together, there's like an exponential factor that, 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 that gets fit in there. So Jesus says, if two or three are gathered in, in, in my name, I'm there. There's something about the numbers. Now, you can pray in his name on your own, and that's powerful and effective. But something about coming together. Find opportunities to pray with other people. Uh, there's a unique kind of power in that. And when there's a request, when there's a need that you see, invite others to, to help push that rock up the hill. Uh, some things can't be done alone. Number four. Bible says to pray continually. Pray without ceasing, Paul says. And here's what I'll, I'll just draw from that is include God. Make, make God a conversation partner throughout your day. Don't make talking to God uh, uh, a thing you do now and then. You, know, you need to have separate times to pray and have a date with Jesus and all that. that that's absolutely true. But our job is, our goal has got to be to try to integrate the kingdom into every aspect of our life. To make it our new normal. Make talking to God, since communication is the essence of everything, right? It's, it is relationship. Talk to God throughout the day as you're going about your daily life. And not just talk, but listen. Listen. Because God actually talks back. And, and pay attention to uh, the promptings that are on your heart. Make God a conversation partner. God loves to talk with you. You know that? In fact, for some of us, God is saying, I really miss you. Can we hang out a little bit more? Would you, would you open your heart a little more to me? Can you talk to me? I mean, invite me into your normal. I want to be part of your everyday life. That, that's what love does, right? When you love somebody, you want to be involved in their life, in the little nitty-gritty things. Invite God into everything, which leads to my final point, and that is um, God cares about the small stuff. There's nothing too small to bring to God. What happens to some of us, I think, is this. Um, We've all met, uh, you might call them Christmas Christians, where, where, where God's like a big Santa Claus, right? And, and they're just all into, you know, oh, every day with Jesus is just Christmas. And he gives me presents all the time. And today he gave me a new vase for my nice luxurious house. And, and he found me a parking spot over there in Macy's. And, and I just found just the right shoes to have. And, and, and it's like God's this little give me, give me grab bag thing. And, and we see that and it's like, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to be, that. I don't want to go there. But then we can go to the other extreme, and it can feel trivial uh, to ask God for, to heal your hamster, because the hamster really means a whole lot to your daughter. But you know what? 
If, if that hamster matters to your daughter, it matters to you and it matters to God. Pray for the hamster. <laughs> and you, 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 I can look at the world and in light of all the suffering that's going on and, and just uh, people being dehumanized and all the violence and all that, it feels trivial to bring to God these little tiny things. But you know what? It's like if your daughter, your six-year-old daughter comes home from school crying because Johnny was mean to her, you know, that's not apocalyptic. Uh, from your adult perspective, there's going to be bigger problems than that. But right now, that matters to your daughter, and therefore it matters to you. And you want your daughter to be telling you that, right? And you enter into that. And it's the same thing with us. God cares about the little things. Uh, you're not being trivial for asking God for trivial things. Because God is in love with you and wants this conversation to be going on about everything. Include God into everything. Um, we are kings and queens, folks. And we've got this wonderful opportunity to change the world through prayer. It's also a wonderful responsibility because things genuinely hang in the balance. I, I want us to enter, go into 2019 with a deeper uh, commitment to trusting in the power of prayer. We be a people, can we be a people who will commit to that, engaging in prayer? If you're in agreement with that, say amen. amen. If you really are in agreement with that, say amen.